Hello, I'm Rob Forsyth. Welcome to Liberalism in Question. In this half-hour podcast from the Centre for Independent Studies, we explore questions and challenges to liberalism today. My guest today is one of Australia's longest-serving Prime Ministers and leader of the Liberal Party, John Howard. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be with you. You famously used the 19th century uh, English church phrase, the broad church, mm. to describe your own particular party. What did you mean by that? I meant that the peculiar or distinctive tradition of the Liberal Party in Australia was that it was the custodian of two political traditions, the classical liberal tradition and also conservatism. And I wanted to emphasise that in this respect, the Liberal Party of Australia, although similar in many ways to, for example, the Republican Party in the United States and the Conservative Party in Britain, was different because we had those two traditions. And, of course, the word liberal has a different meaning in the United States uh, and in other parts of the world. And because of the, the long history of the Liberal Party and previously the Whigs of, uh, of England, um, it has a slightly different connotation there. But it also, more than any of that, it encapsulated the reality and is what I always felt about the Liberal Party, that it stood for these two great traditions. What's the difference between the two great traditions? They're together, but what's the difference between them, in your understanding? Well, I'd say that the difference um, um, is that you should never, in my opinion, in tackling a political issue, always have a conservative position or always have a liberal position. Um, because in the case of always having a conservative position, it means that you never want change. Right. Now, now any society that sets its face against change uh, is bound to um, decay. You have to change, but you've got to choose the right things to change. And, and equally, any society that says it embraces change for change's sake uh, is also doomed to make a lot of errors. And it, it's a question of hanging on to what works, but being brave enough to alter, even radically alter, what fails. I'm interested in teasing out um, what you think liberalism is in itself. It's distinct from conservatism. Well, liberalism is, uh, is a belief system that says that individuals are at their best and achieve the most for themselves their families and their country if they are allowed uh, to use their talents to the maximum extent possible. And a liberal society is the one that respects the primacy of the individual, not a selfish primacy, but a, a belief that if an individual is allowed uh, to work through and achieve what his or her talents enable, him or her to occur, then um, you get the best outcomes. Have you always believed this or did you come to that discovery? In oh, your I think life is a combination of starting with innate beliefs mm -hmm. and either having them reinforced or disabused. Um, in, in my case, um, I had them reinforced. I was brought up to believe that individuals were important, but I was also brought up to believe that society's institutions that worked were also important. And I suppose um, uh, I was a broad church 
work in progress uh, when I, I joined the Liberal Party. Uh, as people know, through my years in politics, I defended some of the great institutions of our society, but I challenged others. My position, for example, on industrial relations um, was uh, an iteration mm. of my liberalism. In the industrial relations system that I wanted to alter was built on faith in the collective, not faith in the individual. Does the fact we need both imply in a sense that, I think you've already answered this, but I want to teach it a little further, that by itself, liberalism is, is not, ad, not a complete system, classical liberalism, and by itself, conservatism is not a complete system. They both, in a sense, need each other to, to be effectively working. Well, that's been my experience, and it's also been the broad experience of the Liberal Party. Um, not everybody. I mean, some people used to say to me, how can you be conservative on some things and liberal on others? And I say very easily, yeah. because some things have to be changed, others need to be preserved. It's actually quite simple. But um, when I would say to people, I'm a social conservative, but an economic liberal, some of them would agonise over that and say, oh, look, I'm a... Um, uh, I'm a, a, a social liberal as well as an economic liberal. There are some people in the Liberal Party like that. Well, mm. that's all right. They want to have that view. I, I'm, I believe in, in peaceful coexistence, <laughs> to borrow a phrase from the Cold War. Um, one of the interesting issues in, in the Liberal Party is that it is not called the Conservative Party, <laughs> um, as in the United Kingdom, but Robert Menzies deliberately did choose the word liberal do you want to comment on what he meant by that? And why well, he I think that what he meant, he, he wanted to be a party that looked forward. forward. Because the anti-Labor parties in Australia, when the Liberal Party was formed, it had a very chequered history. They really had. And, 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 and when you think of the history, the Labor Party was a continuum from the great industrial disputes of the 1890s. The, the, the Liberal Party was formed out of the ashes of the UAP, which in turn had been a fusion of people who left the Labor Party over conscription, mm. uh, 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 rather, who disagreed with, with um, uh, the then Labor government over response to the Depression. And they, in turn, were composed of people who left the Labor Party over uh, conscription and uh, had formed a, a union with the then National Party. I mean, it was a very mixed mob, uh, and it had become the old UAP, the United Australia Party, had become subject to a lot of pressure from business groups, nothing wrong with aligning with business groups, but not being dominated by them. And Menzies wanted uh, to start with a clean sheet. And uh, he used the word liberal rather than the word conservative because he wanted to project the, uh, a vision of the future. If he used the word conservative, apart from it being an inadequate description, of the party he was forming, it would have reminded people of what had gone before. And uh, the 1943 election was an absolute disaster for the United Australia Party. And Billy Hughes, who had been Prime Minister during World War I, led the party to a very dismal result. So Menzies wanted to break free of that, and he shrewdly chose the name Liberal. It's not right to say that in choosing the name Liberal he was um, uh, putting aside conservatism. I mean, Menzies was a conservative on yes. a lot of things. Very, very conservative on many things. Um, but equally uh, progressive, liberal on others. 
In fact, he himself was a member, was a prime minister of the UAP, wasn't he? Before well, he was. Actually, he so was. He, had, he became the leader of the UAP. So his own past, in a sense, he was trying to reinvent yeah, as well. Of course, and of course, that had, it had turned out to be um, you know, a failure, and he recognised that. Yeah. His party turned on him. He resigned. He went away to bleed a while. Uh, to quote the Scottish poem, um, and um, he came back. And it was a remarkable recovery. It was amazing. It was the greatest recovery in Australian political history. And, it's, and, 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 and it lasted. Well, it certainly lasted. I mean, he, he led the party for an unbroken, in office, for an unbroken period of 16 years. And when you add to that the period that he led it since 1944, you're looking at, uh, at over 20 years, and it's quite amazing. I didn't just mean his own achievement, but the whereas beforehand, as you said, the anti-Labour forces were quite fractious mm. and unclear in their sense, he gave it a kind of card. A con I mean, put my question more simply, did the Liberal-Conservative nexus, this broad church, prove to be the heart that was needed to maintain a viable movement? It's even in power today, the same party. I think the nexus helped enormously. Yep. To be historically honest, the cataclysmic split in the Labor Party over communism in the 1950s uh, greatly facilitated uh, the success of Menzies, plus the coalition that he forged with the country party. That's always been fundamental to uh, the success of the non-Labor side of politics. And people forget that on our side of politics at their peril. Because it kind of outsources, rather strangely, issues which may be not as easy to contain within the Liberal Party. Exactly. You hoover up yes. <laughs> uh, some votes and some support you wouldn't otherwise get. Mm. I won't discuss the Labor Party, but it's that's often an issue for them. Uh, well, the, the Labor Party faces a an identity issue, and it does have a fundamental conflict yeah. between, to use expressions known to Sydney listeners, um, between Young Street Annandale and uh, High Street Penrith. <laughs> Indeed. Um, liberalism seems to me to be in some sense under challenge at the moment in a range of areas. Um, certainly it's not a philosophy of life that one seems younger people are, are gathering to if, in, in their ideology. I'm wondering if you think, do the times suit liberalism today? Or are we in a situation where liberalism is going to come under a temporary, but an idea? Uh, people are looking much more to government action. They're concerned about equality more than freedom, uh, safety rather than enterprise. These seem to be the mood of the day. Do you have any comments on that? Do you think I'm writing in describing it that way? I seem to remember remarks like that being made at the end of um, 2018 and in the lead up to the last election. And I can even remember some well-known columnists in Australia saying that the new zeitgeist was um, government intervention. I'm not sure it is. Um, uh, I don't think you can ever declare uh, that the age of liberalism is over or the age of liberalism is with us forever. I think a value system such as liberalism must always be defended. Uh, equally, I, I don't think you can ever uh, say that um, a major political movement in this country, which is, I'm thinking of the Labor Party that has existed since the 1890s, uh, uh, is facing extinction. I, I don't believe that at all. There will always be... Uh, um, 
a core of people who support a philosophy and it will ebb and flow and and go out of favour as time goes by. But fundamentally, um, I think the biggest threat to liberalism at the present time is the free speech strain of liberalism. I think free speech is under threat on some university campuses. I think there is an increasing um, threat to free speech when it comes to mm. discussions about, about gender, uh, about issues of discrimination, about issues of race. Uh, we run the risk in the name of, of the noble ideals of, of, of the equality of races and, and uh, uh, the equality of men and women. They're noble ideals and they should be supported, but they shouldn't be used as a cloak to close down sensible but, debate. But isn't this really, in a sense, a problem that liberalism brought upon itself? Uh, people like Mill and others have said that freedom should be only limited if you're causing harm. Mm -hmm. And one thing I've noticed uh, is that a lot of the language requiring uh, limit, li limitations on speech and government action is to protect people from harm. Mm. And we're a society which is more concerned today with not harming than the sense of courageously... Harm minimisation has overcome the, to the cry of liberty. And so that's a strange sense in which liberals' own ethics don't harm is kind of got loose. I suppose it depends on how you define harm. The great classical... That's the whole question, I suspect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The great classical definition... I, I was always stuck in my mind it was statement by a 19th century English judge, I've forgotten his name, which he says, freedom of speech obviously doesn't entitle you to cry fire uh, in a crowded theatre. Now, that's different from hurting somebody's feelings uh, yes. with a statement. I think one of our problems is that we have over-legislated. Um, I, I, I can remember the debate about what became 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act. Yes, yes. That was debated in the shadow cabinet of the then opposition when I wasn't the leader, Alexander Downer was the leader then. And, and I had the greatest possible <coughs> reservation. So did the opposition, to its credit, it voted against uh, that particular measure. And uh, it wasn't until the Andrew Bolt case that we realised how um, punitive that measure had become. Now, I think one of the reasons we have a lot of these concerns now is that we have over-legislated. We have put too much on the statute books saying what you can't do. I mean, we still have a debate about the religious freedom issue arising out of the same-sex marriage change. Now, one of the reasons we have that is that the freedoms that people are legitimately concerned about now are not freedoms ab initio. They are by courtesy of exemptions to anti-discrimination legislation. Now, I say to myself, what does that mean? It means that we must oppose discrimination on the grounds of this, that and the other. I'm all in favour of that. But have we got to a situation where we're depending upon the provisions, an exemption, to a provision in an act, uh, and, and, and we're worried that that might be lost. Now, would you be in favour of a positive right of religious freedom, or is that contrary? No, no, I'm actually not. 
I'm not too keen on that. That sounds too much like a Bill of Rights to me. I mean, I'm, I, I think there are three great things that guarantee political liberty in this country. Uh, the, the first of those is that we have a, a robust parliamentary system. Um, the second of those is that we have um, uh, an incorruptible judiciary, and we do. We have a very proud record of an incorruptible judiciary. And the third, we have a free press. Now, if you have those things, um, uh, I think you're on track. Um, I, I am resolutely opposed to a Bill of Rights, and in a sense, anti-discrimination legislation is a, is, a, is a poor man's Bill of Rights, isn't it? <laughs> you're against a Bill of Rights because... Well, because I don't think, firstly, you can't ever codify yes. uh, accurately what a right is. The second is you might either undervalue it or overstate it when you try and define it. And thirdly, it's a weapon in the hands of people who have political goals. I mean, this, and I also look at, you know, I look at the, the, the... I mean, working out of a Bill of Rights society is most evident with the US and the United States has been in our minds very much because of the presidential election. Uh, I mean, what is wrong about the American system when you compare it with ours, of course, is that matters that are in this country determined, values issues which are determined by Parliament and the people, they're determined by the courts and that is fundamentally wrong. Uh, and it seems to me yeah. that the new justice appointed to the American Supreme Court is a is, is, is a very fine person. But it's very important there. We've just named two new justices of the High Court of Australia, not the same who are. Why? Because they will just be dealing with the law. They won't be adjudicating on major social issues. It's created a politicisation of the judiciary. Oh, yes, yeah, but that's, that's unavoidable. Right. That's unavoidable, mm. yes. And, and what right do elected... I mean, what qualities do appointed judges have that the citizens don't have okay. to decide what their views are. I mean, I, I think in America, the debate about same-sex marriage, I mean, leave aside the merits of the issue either way, people know my position on that, but it's been now resolved in Australia. But in the United States, you had a state like California, got a reputation for being a progressive slash liberal state, that actually passed a, 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 a restrict, it adopted what some people would call a restrictive view of same-sex marriage, and they were promptly told by the Supreme Court that they were wrong. Well, this is the wrong. Supreme Court does. But is the Supreme Court qualified to do that? I don't think so. I'm Rob Forsyth. This is Liberals in Question, and my guest is John Howard. Mm -hmm. um, are you optimistic about the future of liberalism as a, as, a, as a movement, not just the Liberal Party? I'm trying not to talk no, about no, just no, politics, no, no, but no, liberalism as a... Oh, look, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic because I think the, the nature of man is, is liberal. I think the nature of... You don't think it's a particular social construct of Western Christian civilization, as some have argued? Oh, well, I suppose it's Christian Christianity and Western civilization have had something to do with it, but I'm optimistic because I think um, Western civilization has been very successful. Um, uh, it's not everybody's cup of tea, and I don't say that it's without moral and intellectual flaw. But... Uh, but you do think liberalism somehow speaks more truly to human nature? Then? I think it does, yeah. Well, it extols the individual, and of course that aligns very, very strongly with uh, Christianity, that's the fundamental true. of which is the relationship between the individual and God. I'm, I'm, that's undoubtedly true. That, that raises some to say 
liberalism may be a good thing, but it's a socially contingent, it's a historically contingent movement. And to think that few people are natural liberalists to make a mistake, people are not naturally anything. And that's the argument against your uh, Yes, but um, I think, <laughs> let me put it this way, I think more people naturally adhere to the idea that um, the individual is the master of his own or her own destiny. Because there have been attempts to make nations liberal in in the last decades, which have failed dismally. I'm thinking of the uh, of the Arab Spring. I'm thinking of the attempts to um, but weren't, uh, weren't to bring you, democracy to the Middle East and places like that. But you think of the Arab Spring. Wasn't that the Arab Spring more a reaction against authoritarianism, yes, rather than an embrace of what we understand to be liberalism? Yes, exactly. I think that's exactly right. Therefore, take away authoritarianism. What's left is not necessarily liberalism. It's something. Oh else. no, you can have a you can have socialistic freedom. Yeah. and that's not very liberal in my view. It still involves too much intervention by the state. And I can think of some societies that are quite liberal in many of their attitudes, but they don't work very well because the economic construct doesn't embrace enough liberalism. And there are always degrees. Of liberalism, um, the every intervention by the government in the operation of an economy is a restriction of some sort on liberalism. And but that's but not always unnecessary. But not always unnecessary. Not always unnecessary. Um, I mean, there there is in governing a country there are inevitable compromises between the pure pursuit of what might loosely be called an ideology or a mm. way of governing and what you are required to do according to the circumstances. Um, it's often said that liberalism is blind to some aspects of human life. That is, it's, it, it, it doesn't recognise issues of power and class. And therefore, if allowed to go too strongly, it'll mean a very unequal society could well develop rather than necessarily a happy society. Give people so much freedom, some will be left behind, it is said, and therefore we do need to have some limitations, even government engagement. Do you think liberalism is inherently self-correcting or does it need these differences of class and race need to be dealt with in other ways? Oh, inevitably um, they do. They do. And, and no philosophy can be inherently self-correcting in a way. And it, and it doesn't operate in a vacuum. Um, in, in, in our kind of society, it, it operates with the regular consent or disapproval of the population. And, and it's through that vehicle that the restrictions on the pure operation and the limitations on laissez-faire liberalism are imposed. In fact, it's, it's been argued by, I think, Tim Wilson, who's been, been on this podcast, that liberalism does face a danger in that it's not the, not seen to be delivering to, to certain gener, certain demographics in our society who, who uh, need liberalism to be more effective, thinking of generational inequities, uh, housing, young generation not getting housing, and so forth and so on. And that liberalism needs to be aware of the fact that it needs to, to keep winning a constituent to show that it makes sense of their lives, it works well for them, which means it's got to keep adapting. That, that, that as I understand, was his thesis in his book, The New Social Contract. Are you sympathetic to that? I think that makes the mistake of defining liberalism too much in a political All right. sense. Um, I mean, I could argue with equal force that 
the reason why liberalism is not delivering, and inverted commas is not delivering, is because it hasn't been properly applied. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Uh, and, and, and if you, know, you but some of the gaps that have emerged in society are the result of unwise government intervention rather than a lack of government intervention. Now, it depends, and I think it varies according to any given set of circumstances. In fact, I'm sure that's true. I, I'm no expert on housing policy, but we, here at CIS we have some who are, and I think they would argue that uh, the government's as much a cause of the problem as the solution of the problem for some of the housing. Well, they have in, in certain parts, and when you impose planning restrictions yeah. and, and uh, succumb to green bands and all those sorts of things, uh, uh, that produces adverse consequences. Because uh, we at the CIS are, are interested in liberalism. They're the, not, not, we are interested in the party, as we're interested oh, in all the parties, but we're not, we're not a partisan organisation. No. Do you see liberalism also having a, a role to play in not the Liberal Party? Do you see liberal elements in, in, other, in your what were your political opponents? Oh, yeah, there are many people I know in the Labor Party who have a more party commitment to liberalism than some people I've known in the Liberal Party. I won't, I won't personalise it. But well, uh, what a pity! I could get my podcast very famous if you did. <laughs> <laughs> but it is certainly that is certainly the case. Although the the broad disposition of people in the Labor Party is to prefer the collective over the individual. Right. That is why, of all the things I championed when I was in parliamentary politics, namely industrial. Relations reform, I champion more than anything else, it was so vigorously opposed because it challenged the collective. And it argued that the individual had the right to step outside. And, and whenever you analyse the difference between what I argued for and what the Labor Party argued for in industrial relations, they always came down on the side of saying the collective knew best. I don't want to go into politics, but that issue still unresolved in your mind then? Well, it's still unresolved in the mind, certainly inside the Labor Party. You know, uh, although you, you're seeing some interesting identity I mean, issues at the moment, but yeah. I'm, I'm not setting myself up as an authority on that. No, I meant uh, what you tried to do was then roll back and so... Oh, of course. Oh, oh, of course. <laughs> well, well, what we did was <laughs> not only what we did uh, and what we were um, trying to do at the end was certainly being rolled back. And there is, in fact, in industrial relations, surprisingly at a time when union membership is so low, uh, in industrial relations, uh, there is still a, a dominance of the collective over the individual. The one reason why it was rolled back was the argument against it was this is going to produce unfairness. No, it's not the argument. The individual is powerless against the corporation, mm, against mm, big government. Mm. What, what is wrong with that argument? Well, it wasn't accurate. Well, I mean, the, the, the best demonstration was that, you know, with, and I don't, I don't politicise this, but I have, I'm, I'm driven to. To, to defend, and, and when my government left power, left, left office or voted out, um, we had unemployment fallen below 4%. We had had, had substantial increases in real wages. Uh, and um, we have very few industrial disputes. Now, if the product of good economic policy is the maximum happiness of the community and the maximum number of individuals in that community, that wasn't a bad record. I didn't mean to do that, right. Under the f issues of the vi coronavirus, which is around mm. us, and who knows, we pray will be not as long as it looks with, with various vaccines, there's been a rush to government to help. Uh, the government stepped in in places. Um, is this consistent with, with Liberal? Absolutely, because it's always the role of the government 
uh, to um, mobilise the community against a common threat. There's nothing inconsistent with that. It's, it only becomes inconsistent with liberalism when the threat has evaporated and the government still tries to herd people in a particular direction. You're not going to change your arm where that might happen? <laughs> oh, well, it could happen. Uh, I mean, in theory, it could happen. Yeah, but... um, and and uh, some people would argue it may already have happened in parts of the country, but that's... I think it's too early to make those judgments. But, but I, I don't see anything jarring or inconsistent about the government mobilising the community to fight the common enemy. So you don't see it's a sea change in which no, the issues used to it no, for. No, 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 I, no. I, I, I don't. I, I think it's a perfectly natural community reaction. Thank you. And you're confident that liberalism is going to flourish? Oh, yes, I am. I'm, I'm only confident to the extent that people are willing to fight for it. Um, and, and if they're not willing to fight for it, it will okay. come under threat. That applies to any... Uh, cohering philosophy in a society if you're not prepared to fight for it. I mean, you think of all those famous old sayings about triumphs of evil, good men to do nothing, and, and, and of course you need people to go out and fight for it. But um, I think it's in relatively good shape. Well, I can say one thing for you, sir. You've been one of the fighters for it. Well, I'm, I'm a, <laughs> I continue to be, yeah. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr Howard. That was John Howard, a previous Prime Minister of Australia. This has been another podcast of Liberalism in Question from the Centre for Independent Studies. For decades, the CIS has been the independent voice working to deliver evidence-based policy within a classical liberal framework. We rely solely on the generosity of people like you for donations to advance our cause. Check out the links on the website to see how you can get involved. I'm Rob Forsyth. Thank you for listening.